Good morning, everyone, and thank you for coming to our session of Religious Liberty, the Supreme Court, RIFRA, and RLUPA. And I'm really pleased to have here with us today Mark Scherer, who's Assistant Professor of Politics and Government at the School of Policy, Government, and International Affairs at George Mason University. He's the author of Beyond Church and State, Democracy, Secularism, and Conversion, published by Cambridge University Press in 2013. He has a PhD in political science from John Hopkins University. Mark Silk is the founding director of the Leonard E. Greenberg Center for the Study of Religion and Public Life at Trinity College in Hartford, where he's also professor of religion and public life. He's the author of Spiritual Politics, Religion in America Since World War II, on Secular Media, Making News of Religion in America, and with Andrew Walsh, One Nation, Divisible, How Regional Religious Differences Shape American Politics. He uh, edits the center's online magazine, Religion in the News, and his blog, Spiritual Politics, is a feature of the Religion News Service, where he's contributing editor. He holds a PhD in history from Harvard University and spent 10 years as a reporter. Winifred Fowler Sullivan is professor and chair, Department of Religious Studies, Indiana University, Bloomington. She's the author of four books analyzing legal discourses about religion in the context of actions brought to enforce the religion clauses of the First Amendment and related legislation. Paying the Words Extra, Religious Discourse in the Supreme Court of the United States, The Impossibility of Religious Freedom, Prison Religion, Faith-Based Reform in the Constitution, and Ministry of Presence, Chaplaincy, Spiritual Care, and the Law, Chicago 2014. She holds a PhD and a JD from the University of Chicago. And I'm Barbara McGraw. I'm director of the Center for Engaged Religious Pluralism at St. Mary's College of California. I also direct the Interfaith Leadership Program. And I have a JD and a PhD from the University of Southern California. So we're all here to try to figure out how to balance liberty and the law, I think. <laughs> so, um, my job today is to start with just a little bit of historical perspective to kind of frame what we're talking about today. And so what I wanted to do was just read through my uh, notes to keep time. So from the beginning of the nation, the courts attempted to mediate between the traditional Christian hegemony and the new constitutional regimes of the United States and the states. On their faces, the U.S. Constitution and the state's constitutions provided broad religious liberty protections to all. But in the 19th century, prominent jurists interpreted religious liberty narrowly. The most influential jurist was Justice Story, who wrote that the American colonies had been established on Christian, meaning Protestant, principles, and that the First Amendment was intended to exclude rivalry among Christian sects and to prevent the establishment of a national church and, quote, not to countenance, much less to advance Mohammedanism or Judaism or infidelity by prostrating Christianity. Following that thinking, 
the, the religious liberty laws were interpreted to favor a majoritarian view of religion at the state and local level. For example, in the 19th century, blasphemy laws protecting Christianity prevailed over claims of free speech. It was this way of thinking that won the day in the U.S. Supreme Court's first religious liberty case, Reynolds versus United States, in 1879. Whatever one thinks of the requested liberty right in that case, which was polygamy, the Supreme Court made law that applied generally, holding that religious liberty extends only so far. People may believe whatever they want, but that ends when it comes to acts that are contrary to general laws. In other words, everyone's practices must be in compliance with the general laws even if those practices violate, um, even if those general laws violate one's religion. Clearly, the court did not recognize that the general laws of the day were in large part based on the prevailing Christian, read Protestant, worldview. In that cultural milieu, traditional Christians would be unlikely to need an exemption from laws that infringed on their religious liberty rights. That prevailing worldview was reflected in other areas as well, including even assumptions about what counts as religion. A significant example was the practice of Native American spiritualities, which were circumscribed or even restricted altogether, sometimes with violence, through much of American history. During the mid-20th century, however, the Supreme Court began to allow some exemptions to general laws for religious liberty practices. These became known as religious accommodations. This started in 1963 with the case Sherbert v. Verner, where the court adopted what became known as the strict scrutiny test for addressing whether religious acts that conflict with general laws ought to be given an exemption from the law. And if we could show that slide now, that would be great. Thank you. The strict scrutiny test, as you can see here, requires that when a general law substantially burdens someone's religious exercise, the government must have a compelling interest that justifies restricting that exercise. But even when there is a compelling interest, the restriction on religion must be drawn as narrowly as feasible. That is, the least restrictive alternative, or sometimes they say the least restrictive means, must be applied. The strict scrutiny test slowly began to allow some exemptions from general laws and attitudes towards religious diversity began to change. And in 1978, by an act of Congress, the American Indian Religious Freedom Act provided religious liberty protections to Native Americans too. <clears throat> but in 1990, the Supreme Court ruled that Native Americans' peyote use would not be given an exemption, even though peyote use was an important practice in the complainant's Native American spirituality. The case was Employment Division versus Smith. Reaching back to the Reynolds case, Justice Scalia, writing for the majority, drew a hard line. No religious exemptions for acts, that is for religious practices that run counter to general laws. Only belief is, is protected by the First Amendment. 
The only time a law would be unconstitutional going forward was when the law was passed for the purpose of limiting religion. So the Native Americans lost their case. No accommodation for them. But again, the ruling applied to everyone, and people were not about to remain silent. Religious liberty means nothing, they argued, if religious practices are not protected under the First Amendment. The issue brought together a broad coalition of groups and individuals, including the American Civil Liberties Union and the Traditional Values Coalition, Native Americans and the National Association of Evangelicals, Jews and Muslims, Democrats and Republicans. With this public outcry, it was not surprising that not long following, the U.S. Congress acted to counter the court's Smith decision by nearly unanimously passing the Religious Freedom Restoration Act, known as RIFRA, which was signed into law by President Clinton in 1993. The effect was to reinstate the strict scrutiny test and thereby undo what was seen by many as damage done by the court's Smith decision. Later, the court struck down the application of RIFRA at the state level, although it remained in effect at the federal level. So after that, many states enacted their own RIFRA laws. And then in 2000, U.S. Congress passed the Religious Land Use and Institutionalized Persons Act, known as RLUPA, or some people say RLUPA, which applied the strict scrutiny test to all levels of government in the limited area of institutionalized persons, for example, prison inmates, and land use, for example, church property. And the changes that these laws brought about have been profound as the right of diverse religious adherents have been recognized. So what we see today is that the law of religious liberty that we now know does not stem primarily from the First Amendment, but rather from legislation that counters still existing First Amendment jurisprudence established in the Native American peyote case, Smith. This is the context in which the U.S. Supreme Court made its controversial ruling last year in the Hobby Lobby case, applying RIFRA's strict scrutiny test the court ruled that Christians in a closely held corporation are entitled to an accommodation under the Affordable Care Act's requirement to provide contraception benefits, that the government had not used the least restrictive alternative or means, the court said, and therefore had violated those Christians' rights. Then later in the year, the court decided Holt v. Hobbs, applying RLUIPA's strict scrutiny test, which gave a Muslim prison inmate an exemption from grooming regulations to wear a beard in prison as an accommodation for his beliefs and practices. And then this past spring, there was controversy when Indiana adopted its own RIFRA law, which some had planned to use to try to get religious exemptions to avoid serving people in same-sex marriages. All of this brings us to our panel today, where we hope to shed some light on the many issues these developments raised. When should there be a religious exemption from a general law? How should religious liberty be weighed against other rights? Can religious, scholars, studies, can religious studies scholars play a role in a greater understanding how, of how courts should view religion for the purposes of the law? How can we preserve the religious rights and the rights of conscience of everyone with mutual respect in the face of conflicting values? Thank you.
And now I'd like to call Mark Shearer, excuse me, Matthew Shearer to the podium. Thank you, Barbara, for, for that introduction. Um, I'm just going to begin. Uh, to keep to time, I'm, I'm going to be reading from a text. I'm a political theorist with a longstanding interest in the intersection of religion and politics. My remarks come from that perspective rather than from the study of religion or the study of law in particular. I hope that whatever contrast my perspective brings um, to, the con- to the perspective of the other panelists is going to be helpful for our discussion. In the few minutes I have, I want to dip into some of the larger questions that the problem of religious liberty suggests. To put this quite directly, I'll try to say some pointed things about two quite broad areas of concern that intersect with religious liberty. Those areas are disagreement and democracy. I want to start with a quotation from the prominent scholar and religious liberty advocate, Douglas Laycock. While I'm going to take this line out of its proper context, that won't distort the point that it makes quite elegantly, if somewhat surprisingly. So Laycock notes, quote, too many justices are interested in promoting or restricting religion. Not enough are interested in protecting liberty for believers and non-believers alike, end quote. Now that remark is truly pithy. First, it reveals the tension within the concept of religious freedom. Why do we assume that it will even be possible to reconcile all those things we associate with the term religion, on the one hand, with a quite different range of things we associate with freedom, on the other hand? But that's a nuanced point. There's a more direct thing to notice. Um, The more direct thing to notice is the suggestion that we have to think about religious liberty within the broader context of a liberal democratic way of life a way of life to which the United States aspires, at least, and that, we should, um, and that we should be asking ourselves about the effects of the decisions we make about religious liberty and also about the ways in which we frame and debate the issues it raises. For both our debates and decisions will have effects upon the quality and character of our shared collective political life. I'm going to move now to say a few things about disagreement. The tradition of modern political thought, which is my professional ambit, has an uneasy relationship with religion. Okay, that's an understatement. It it may be more accurate to say that modern political thought is born in reflection on religion. Because this point's important, although perhaps not obvious, I'm going to give two brief examples of what I mean before I go on with the story I'd like to tell about religion and disagreement in modern political thought. So first example. On an intellectual plane, the independent, sober, self-reflective, and critical modes of thought valued in political modernity are sketched in opposition to religious tradition, superstition, dogma, and faith. My point isn't that reason is opposed to faith, but rather that modern political thinkers typically imagine reason in opposition to what they imagine as faith. The second example. On an institutional plane, the modern state emerged as the Roman Catholic Church dissolved in the confessionalization of Europe. There are complicated historical problems here, but my point is simply that two of the definitive rudimentary questions of modern political thought are, how should religion be governed? And how should religion be used to govern? And so the ways in which we think about modern politics are inseparable from the ways in which we think about religion. And yet, to push the story ahead another step, a distinctive feature of modern thought is the idea that these fields of religion and politics must be distinguished from one another. Let me give two more examples. A recurrent idea in recent scholarship is that modernity is self-reflective about its own contours and commitments, whereas prior to modernity, or among people who are not yet properly modern, commitments have been lived naively as given and incontestable. Another recurrent idea um, of longer pedigree, it's an idea that could be attributed to any number of thinkers, is that in John Locke's phrase, 
Quote, it's above all things necessary to distinguish exactly the business of civil government from that of religion, end quote. Or in Thomas Jefferson's echo, we are to maintain a wall of separation between church and state. So positing distinctions between what's properly political and what's properly religious is, I want to suggest, both internal to and constitutive of modern Euro-American political thought. It's not unreasonable to view that tradition as becoming focused in the high enlightenment in the philosophy of Immanuel Kant and cresting recently in the neo-Kantian formulations of Jürgen Habermas and John Rawls. At the cost of alighting important distinctions between them, we can say that Kant, Rawls, and Habermas together articulated the idea that political life could be a matter of forming and maintaining consensus about fundamental matters through rational deliberation. The key condition for such a politics was the exclusion or bracketing of religious questions. This is the essence of what might be called the high doctrine of secularism. It's a doctrine that has been much disputed in recent decades, but it has by no means been eclipsed or supplanted. It's at this point that I want to tack back to the problem of religious liberty. This problem emerges from a welter of particularities associated not least with the history of American institutions, of American law, and of American religions. Sometimes we have trouble connecting these messy particulars, actual events, cases, people, debates, legal doctrines, with more abstract philosophical traditions. But I think it's important to do that work because I want to suggest that our responses to the problem of religious liberty are controlled in ways that we don't typically acknowledge by contestable assumptions about the need to partition religion and politics that are ingrained within the tradition of modern political thought that I'm asking us to think about a bit here. Another way of putting that is to say that even if secularism has been called into question in a great number of ways, secularist assumptions continue to structure the basic grammar of political thought and the fundamental contours of a number of debates. I think there's a lot to be mined here, but I'll just suggest one point to consider. Mirroring the ideal of reason political consensus is the idea that religion is the primordial site of irreconcilable disagreement. Religion is to be excluded from politics, the argument goes, because it's the site of insuperable disagreements at the root of zealotry, intolerance, violence, and warfare. I happen to think that's not particularly true. But more interesting and important than my opinion here is the following point. The very idea of religious liberty cannot be divorced from a modern tradition of political thought that posits a categorical distinction between religion and every other dimension of human life. Religion is in this view not merely distinct, but also deficient, it's often framed this way, archaic, perhaps even anachronistic. There are two questions to ask here. First, to what extent does the framing of religion as something that must be set apart, protected, and, con and contained, a framing that's implicit in the idea of religious liberty, to what extent does that produce religions that are zealous, intolerant, archaic, and anachronistic? And second, to what extent is it possible to formulate and pursue alternative framings? The, the second set of questions I want to open uh, related to this topic of democracy follows on from here. So I'm going to move to the second topic. I teach a course about um, a lecture course most semesters that introduces undergraduate students to the theory and practice of democracy. Sometime during the first class, I usually ask my students whether the United States is a democracy. I do that in part to defamiliarize the concept, to begin exploring some of the disparate ways in which we conceptualize democracy, and to get students talking to one another. Usually the exercise succeeds in eliciting a relatively wide range of responses, 
And almost always one of my students uh, reminds me that the United States is a constitutional republic and not a democracy. They're usually very satisfied with that observation. Eventually, I share with them the truth that the question I pose for them is not particularly well-formed. For democracy is not best thought of as a particular form of government or distinct institutional arrangement, but that it is instead a principle or perhaps better an aspiration. The principles inscribed in this funny Greek word that, that puts together the, the demos with the kratia. So the principle is that the people, the demos, exercise power or rule, the kratia. What is, the primary import, what is of primary importance is that the people constitute themselves such that they can effectively rule themselves. The particular legal and institutional forms selected are of, primary, are of secondary importance. While simple in theory, the rule of the people proves quite difficult in practice. It's this democratic principle, which is sometimes expressed in other terms as the idea of popular sovereignty, that animates U.S. American political tradition. Or to qualify that more carefully, I should say that it's this principle that animates significant elements of key American political traditions. To be clear, this is not a descriptive claim. My point is not that the people are sovereign in U.S. politics, nor is it the normative claim that the people should be sovereign. What I'm trying to identify is an important aspiration that persists in American politics. Without the aspiration on the part of those who have been historically excluded to be accounted among the people, and on the part of the people who so constituted for laws that would secure their freedom and equality, it's hard to say what would remain of American tradition that is properly speaking political. That's both a cursory and an abstract discussion, but I think it may have some interesting consequences as we tack back once more to the matter of religious freedom. One of the tendencies in the U.S. Supreme Court's recent decisions on religious freedom is the acknowledgement of collective rights of religious freedom. Um, the acknowledgement of church autonomy in Hosanna Tabor and of corporate personhood in Hobby Lobby. Now, recognition that religion extends beyond individual belief to live within communities, as the court arguably does in these cases, probably represents a certain kind of progress from the perspective of the academic study of religion. But I want to think about these cases from another perspective, that is, from the perspective of the freedom of all the people, or as I've been suggesting just now, from the perspective of popular sovereignty. A number of issues are at stake in these cases, but I want to suggest that more attention might be paid to the laws in question which were not just any neutral laws of general application, but more precisely parts of the Americans with Disabilities Act and the Affordable Care Act. Without denying the legal and political complexities of these cases, I want to suggest that we heed um, Laycock's call here, the one I started with, to consider the regulation of religion a bit less and to tend a bit more to that liberty of all people, liberty for believers and non-believers alike, as he put it, promised in the ideal of popular sovereignty and expressed more specifically through those laws that constitute us as equal citizens. Religious liberty in these cases comes at great cost to the ideal of meaningful universal citizenship. That's a cost that should be weighed very carefully. And now welcome Mark Silk. Thanks, Barbara. <clears throat> it's a uh cavernous uh, opportunity here that we've been given. <laughs> uh, uh, but I'm delighted to be here. Uh, I'm not uh, a First Amendment lawyer, though uh, I confess uh, I've been playing one in the media on and off uh, for more than a quarter century. Uh, that takes us back to just before Employment Division versus Smith, the case in which 
Justice Scalia, unbidden, rewrote the free exercise clause of the First Amendment. Maybe it's because of that biographical circumstance that I remain an unreconstructed devotee of pre-Smith jurisprudence. And I'd be willing to meet anyone, anywhere, anytime to argue that religious pluralism in theory and practice in America is worse off today because of Smith than if the court had stuck to a regime of strict scrutiny with a fair amount of generosity in deciding what constitutes a compelling state interest, if you want to make that intermediate scrutiny, it's okay with me. Uh, throwing religious rights into the political arena has not, in my view, been a good thing. Um, RIFRA and RELUPA uh, are both consequences of Smith, of course. Um, and uh, as I was preparing these remarks, I wasn't sure whether I should briefly rehearse that history, but thankfully, Barbara has already done that. Uh, um, whether it would have been necessary or not, I don't know, but always good to re rehearse things. Uh, I think RELUPA actually is, a, is relatively easy. Holt v. Hobbs, uh, the case involving the Alabama uh, inmate who wanted to uh, grow a beard longer than a quarter of an inch, um, that was the case decided last January. Uh, and um, and the court uh, found that, that that restriction did not pass uh, strict scrutiny. Uh, and by a, by a, a nine-to-zero decision, um, the court uh, came to that conclusion. The court has upheld RELUPA with respect to prisoners' religious rights, um, but it has not uh, dealt with, with, with the law in, on zoning cases, and so, uh, which is in a way, I mean, given the number of zoning cases that are out there, it's um, possibly surprising uh, that that this uh, that a case hasn't come up. Um, it's possible uh, that there's a good reason for that, um, because as far as I'm concerned, uh, well, I, I find it hard to conceive how the court could uphold. RELUPA with respect to zoning without overturning its Bernie decision, the 1997, which was a 1997 zoning case that the court used uh, to declare RIFRA unconstitutional. Um, that was a case involving a desire on the part of the Archbishop of San Antonio to make some changes in a, in a uh, historically protected uh, church in his uh, archdiocese or diocese. Um, Anyway, I don't see how uh, how the court then could overturn Bernie by upholding, <laughs> or or at least uh, I, I think it would it would find itself in a in a position of uh, of getting directly at what it decided in 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 Bernie, and and so I think we're going to have to wait on on that element anyway of Relupa. Um RIFRA is a different story. Uh, I remember when, uh, when writing about this for the Atlanta Journal-Constitution, um, uh, President Clinton, who signed the act into law, uh, sort of chastised the press for, for, for treating, for, for basically ignoring the law uh, and saying that this was a very important law and, and, and should receive much more public attention uh, than it received. Um, lo and behold, uh, 
25 years later, uh, it received, it has received more attention than I think anybody ever would have imagined, for better or worse. Um, the uh, goal of, 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 of Justice Scalia, we really in, 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 in the Smith decision, was to um, throw religious liberty into the political realm. Uh, I don't think the consequences have been particularly good. Um, uh, but um, it's interesting to me how little flack Scalia himself has caught uh, from conservative defenders of religious liberty for foisting uh, this uh, undermining of a fundamental constitutional right uh, on the country um, and, and, and democratic decision-making. Relib religious liberty has gone from being a concern uh, of liberal civil libertarians uh, as part of the rights revolution since then um, to a very strong concern of social conservatives who find that courts and legislatures and popular majorities alike are passing neutral laws of general application that affront their own religious sensibilities. In other words, Smith's chickens have come home to roost. Um, I think the court would like to reverse Smith, but I suspect the conservatives don't want Scalia going ballistic. Uh, and so rather, uh, Smith has been circumscribed in various ways. I don't think when Smith was passed uh, that there was any reason to think that it wouldn't be applied to federal laws. But in 2006, in a, a case uh, involving drugs, uh, Gonzalez versus O Centro Espirita Beneficente, and so on, Vegetal, um, the court found that, in fact, uh, statutorily, um, you could apply uh, RIFRA to all federal legislation, past, present, and future. Um, my assignment today uh, is to say how religious rights are to be weighed against other rights, and particularly the right of equal protection under the law that was enunciated in the 14th Amendment as a way of protecting African Americans from discriminatory state laws uh, after the Civil War. Under the Equal Protection Clause, the court applies strict scrutiny uh, to laws that discriminate on the basis of race, uh, but intermediate scrutiny under which the challenged law must be shown to further an important government interest by means that are substantially related uh, to that interest. Uh, when it comes to sex discrimination um, and uh, the, the lowest standard of scrutiny, rational basis uh, to disability discrimination as well as really up till now, discrimination on the basis of sexual orientation. Um, now, it's important to recognize that under RIFRA, the court employed strict scrutiny uh, in deciding the Hobby Lobby case. Uh, that was a federal law of general applicability, having to do with uh, assuring that women received uh, free contraceptive care under their insurance, uh, employer insurance plans. Um, this assumed... Uh, but did not concede, that is the Hobby Lobby decision, that the government did have a compelling interest in providing women with such care. But it found that the government could not advance that interest by a, could advance that interest by a less restrictive means, uh, that than requiring closely held for-profit companies to provide the religiously objectionable coverage. Um, and that less, restrictive means uh, was by signing a waiver, 
the same kind of waiver as religiously based nonprofits were required to do. Um, that's now where the federal government uh, gets the waiver and instructs the insurance company uh, either either covering or or administering the insurance plan uh, to provide uh, the f coverage free of charge itself. Uh, the new case just accepted by the court, Little Sisters uh, versus Burwell, considers whether this accommodation actually passes strict scrutiny for religious nonprofits. My view is that it should, um, and I th think that the pre-Smith court would have found that to be the case. But to me, the most fascinating case in terms of the implications for religious pluralism or liberty is Obergefell, uh, last June's 5-4 decision establishing same-sex marriage as a constitutional right. It is highly significant that in Obergefell, Justice Kennedy articulated no level of scrutiny at all. In line uh, with his succession of gay rights decisions, he declined to declare sexual orientation a protected uh, or quasi-protected classification under the Equal Protection Clause, preferring instead to push what uh, uh, Lawrence Tribe uh, recently called a principle of equal dignity based on an intertwining of both the Equal Protection and Due Process Clauses of the 14th Amendment. Um, and you can read his article uh, just uh, online in the Harvard Law Review to see what he means by intertwining. Um, but let me conclude by saying, by saying, asking what the implications for greater religious pluralism or as some would say religious liberty are. On the one hand, Obergefell leaves the door open to discrimination based on sexual orientation as opposed to race. And here's how. If a photographer cites a RIFRA statute against an anti-discrimination law um, in order to refuse services to a mixed-race couple, the state can declare that it has a compelling interest in forcing the law because race is a protected classification and the state can require the photographer to provide the services. But because sexual orientation is not a protected classification in that sense, the state uh, is precluded from making that argument. At the same time, and uh, this uh, is a argument made by the University of Washington's Peter Nicholas uh, in University of California uh, Law Review just the other day. Um, Obergefell's grander declaration of a principle of, of this principle of equal dignity leaves the door open to polygamy, takes us back to Reynolds, and other forms of currently forbidden marriage. That is to say, if Kennedy had contented himself um, with declaring sexual orientation to be a protected classification, then fundamentalist Mormons uh, would have less reason to cheer Obergefell. In other words, what Obergefell does is provide greater latitude in, for religious dissidents from what I take to be the new mainstream consensus on marriage, the right of an adult to marry another adult of either gender. The question for this year is to decide whether he will as the probable deciding vote in the Little Sisters case do the same. Thank you. And now we'll welcome Winifred Sullivan to the podium. Thank you, Barbara, for inviting me to join this panel. If you live or work in Indiana, as I do, 
RIFRA is a hot topic, and you have been the target over the last year of contemptible attack in social media, attacks which presume that Indiana is somehow the ground zero in the protection of homophobia and the collapse of religious freedom. Even President Obama makes jokes about Indiana. He recently reportedly said that he and Joe Biden were such good friends that they would not be able to order a pizza in Indiana. I'm very uncomfortable with this snarky framing of these issues. The problem is not religious conservatives. My own view is pretty well known, I think. I think that re religious freedom, if you like, has jumped the shark. I don't think accommodations or exemptions to the law should be adjudicated on the basis of religion. In my brief remarks here today, I will, as Barbara requested, focus rather on the somewhat narrow issue of the use of expert testimony in these cases. And uh, in, in this sense, it's addressed to the membership of the AAR. Uh, I think we should resist the temptation to testify as experts in religion. I believe we have nothing relevant, relevant in the formal legal sense, to say in court about religion. I used to be a law professor. Among other things, I taught evidence. All laws protecting religious free exercise require an initial finding that the party before the court is, in fact, religious. Sometimes that is tacit and taken for granted. Sometimes it is made explicit. In most countries, there's a government office for making such a determination, a ministry of religious affairs that decides whether your group counts as a religion for purposes of the law and any rights to which you might be entitled. There are some advantages to this. It locates the question in a way that we can't do. In the U.S., we have no such office. We arguably abolish the distinction between legally recognized religion or true religion and legally unrecognized religion or false religion when the Constitution was ratified. Indeed, one might say, I would say, that distinguishing between religious folks and non-religious folks for any purpose and religious reasons and non-religious reasons is not something that U.S. law can do, and yet we continue to do it, and all of these laws uh, depend on that kind of distinction. So let's get back to the evidence problem. Assume you are litigating such a case in court. What evidence would you offer to prove that your client's motivation is religious? And on what basis would a judge or a jury judge the materiality of that evidence? Is that a seat-of-the-pants judgment? Do they just know it when they see it? Would you be satisfied with such lay judgments about your religious or non-religious position? You might decide to turn to expert witnesses, to a professor of religion, to prove that your client and her motivations are religious. That would be a mistake in my view. I don't think that is an assignment we religion scholars should accept. I think the result would be what evidence lawyers call junk science. Not, of course, because we don't know anything, but because I think we cannot answer the questions that law asks. I speak from experience. I was an expert witness in the first religion case under the first state RIFRA law. I've written about this case before, but I continue to believe that it provides a helpful example, so I hope you will forgive me if I go back to it. Let me tell you about it. It was in the late 1990s in Florida. The plaintiffs were a group of families whose relatives had been buried in a municipal cemetery in Boca Raton, Florida. 
The principal issue at trial was whether what the plaintiffs had done on the graves to memorialize their relatives was a practice of religion within the meaning of the new Florida statute prohibiting government from substantially burdening the practice of religion. Cemetery regulations had limited memorialization in the cemetery to small flat plaques flush with the ground. These regulations were designed, the city said, to facilitate lawn maintenance and movement of heavy equipment for grave digging, but they were also consistent with contemporary trends in cemetery design. Yet over a couple of decades in the 1980s and 1990s, sympathetic cemetery workers had allowed several hundred families, ordinary American Protestants, Catholics, and Jews, to install small homemade assemblages, including crosses, statues of saints, and stars of David, among other items, on the graves, in apparent violation of the, of the regulations. In 1998, the city had abruptly changed its policy and decided to start enforcing the rules by removing existing grave decorations. After a period of political lobbying and protest, the family sued in federal district court, claiming that both the cemetery rules and the city's enforcement of the rules violated the then brand new Florida RIFRA. The plaintiffs in court each explained why they did what they did to memorialize their relatives, citing family tradition, the Bible, and mem memories of burial practices they had observed. The city, for its part, argued that the installations were not religious because they were not formally and explicitly mandated by the respective religions, that is, Protestantism, Catholicism, and Judaism. In effect, the city argued, it was not the case that their religions made them do it. That was the standard proposed by the city. Religious exemption should be allowed only if explicit religious norms mandate your action. Although there was no support for this position in the Act, or in the legislative history of the Act, or indeed in the history of First Amendment jurisprudence, the city imagined religion as a regime of non-negotiable bright-line rules enforced by a religious hierarchy, the violation of which would result in grave punishment, something like a criminal law regime. Three experts in religion testified for the plaintiffs, of whom I was one, and two for the city of Boca Raton and each of us offered an opinion as to whether the grave decorations built by the plaintiffs were religious or not. Sounds kind of like a AAR panel, right? Uh, the religion experts who testified for the families in the Warner case were chosen by the plaintiff's lawyer, an ACLU lawyer representing, who, who himself had little knowledge of religion. What the plaintiffs needed us to say to satisfy RIFRA was that the plaintiffs' practices were, were religious. We each testified from our different academic perspectives as to why we would consider them religious uh, or wh why the plaintiff's practices would be considered religious by religion scholars. And we all testified, though not explicitly required by religious law, in the sense that we could not point to a ruling from God that burial required this kind of memorialization, the practices of the plaintiffs were rooted in and consistent with the broad social practices within these traditions and with the religious narratives expressed by the plaintiffs in their own testimony. We also said that we could imagine that plaintiffs would be substantially burdened if the objects were removed from the graves. Indeed, with respect to the Jewish graves, the actual removal in some sense was more serious than uh, the prohibition in the first place. We, the experts, offered 
Oh, wait, I'm sorry. One man, to give you a sense of these, one man, a self-described born-again Christian, had built a four-foot oak cross covered with silk lilies to honor his wife. One couple put a stone star of David on the grave of their son who had died young. Two Cuban-American sisters who prayed daily at at the cemetery had placed a statue of the Sacred Heart on the grave of their brother who had committed suicide and for whom they feared for his immortal soul. We, the experts, offered what you might call an endorsement of these acts as vernacular or folk religion, non-institutional religion, as morally significant. The language of the statute and the legislative history of the passing of the Florida RIFRA arguably supported such a broad reading of what counts as religion. The religion experts for the defendant, the city of Boca Raton on the one hand, on the other hand, both scholars of comparative religions offered formal structured models of religion that would permit the judge to locate the plaintiff's practices along a spectrum from high or central religious practices defined as institutional, textual, and male, I kid you not, to low or peripheral religious practices defined as home-based, oral, and female. Naturally, of course, you know which would be protected. Each concluded that the popular religious practices evident in the cemetery shrines were were low or peripheral, home-based, oral, and female and therefore did not rise to a level that deserved legal protection. Each offered an abstract hierarchical model of religion to be used to test what should count as legal religion in the U.S., notwithstanding the non-existence of any constitutional or statutory grounds to codify such a hierarchy. The judge, I would say, basically ignored all of us, and the (laughs) plaintiffs lost. So getting back now to the uh, rules of evidence. Rule 702 of the Federal Rules of Evidence provides that a witness who is qualified as an expert by knowledge, skill, experience, training, or education may testify in the form of an opinion or otherwise if the expert's scientific, technical, or other specialized knowledge will help the trier of fact to understand the evidence or to determine a fact in issue. It's also A, B, the testimony is based on sufficient facts or data, C, the testimony is the product of reliable principles and methods, and D, the expert has reliably applied the principles and methods to the facts of the case. So just to underline my point, I don't think we can meet this standard. Not as I say because we don't know anything, but because we don't know what the court needs to know. That is whether what the particular plaintiffs in this case What they're doing is religious. In other words, we cannot help the trier of fact. In my view, our job is elsewhere, in educating future legislators and voters and mayors and town councils, so that when they look at the kitsch in a South Florida cemetery, they see something important and human, not something obstructive and intrusive. So-called scientific courtroom evidence is the subject of strong critique today for a number of reasons. Some of it is seen as just bought and paid for. Some of it is characterized, as I said, as junk science. Some of it is viewed as a threat to the province of the jury. The expert testimony in the Warner case revealed the gap that often opens in these cases between the academic study of religion on the one hand and the judges' and the witnesses' own versions of what religion is. 
The capacity of a court to adjudicate the orthodoxy or centrality of the witnesses' practices is deeply problematic in a country in which religion is constitutionally disestablished and the free exercise of religion is guaranteed. Indeed, the judge himself in the Warner case announced his respect for the sincerity of the plaintiff's religious practices and celebrated U.S. religious freedom. But he could not see his way clear to legally endorse such a broad definition. Instead, he described what they did as motivated by what he called purely personal preference. One could say that the judge in Boca Raton simply refused to implement the evident in intent of the Florida statute to protect all religiously motivated persons from laws that impinge on their religious practices, however peripheral or unattested to in the tradition. The alternative is the city lawyer frequently announced would be cemetery chaos. And as I, I have come to believe, it would also be discrimination. Because if the plaintiffs had won, non-religiously motivated folks within whatever definition of religion was adopted by the court would not have been allowed such accommodation for their family memorials. So to um, analogize perhaps to the recent Holt decision that uh, Mark mentioned in which the court uh, in which a prisoner, Muslim prisoner, uh, asked for an accommodation to uh, wear a beard of a certain length, length uh, not permitted by prison authorities, although that decision has been much celebrated by those who, uh, are, who advocate uh, accommodations, the result in that case is going to be that only religiously motivated prisoners can wear beards. Um, I think that's a, an extremely problematic result. Anyway, are these the kinds of decisions you want U.S. courts making? Do you as a conservative Christian want the court to decide that the cross on your wife's grave is simply a decorating decision? Do you as a Jewish American want to be told that the Star of David you put on your son's grave is not religious by a Presbyterian judge who has read the Old Testament and has decided to prefer his reading over that of the rabbi who testified about Jacob raising a monument to Rachel because, as the judge said, the patriarchs did a lot of things we wouldn't want to permit. Do you, as a gay rights activist, want the court to decide that your religious exercise is not religiously orthodox and therefore not protected by law? What happened in the Boca Raton case, in my view, was that by elevating a local dispute over burial practices to one about religion and rights, an opportunity for the city and its residents to engage in the necessary local politics to negotiate a local solution was lost. The plaintiffs had said repeatedly that they would have been happy to find a compromise in which they removed the items at certain times to make maintenance or new burials easier to accomplish. But by being forced to go to court, the problem was redefined as one of, one of religious freedom rather than one of community governance and both sides were enlisted in what has now become a global culture war between secularists and religionists. So it is my view that all legal efforts to regulate religious freedom can be boiled down to an effort to separate good religion from bad religion, and we certainly have plenty of evidence of that today. I don't think that's something that American courts should be do, doing. I don't think it is something that the Constitution permits, and it is not something that scholars of religion have any expertise in adjudicating. So I guess uh, most importantly, and just to gesture to Matt's comments earlier in this panel, uh, it distracts us from the necessary political work 
of deciding how to govern ourselves. So thank you very much. So I'm just going to make a couple of comments um, from another perspective. And then what we're going to do is we're going to open up a conversation among the panelists on some of the questions that are raised and then open it up to conversation with you as well. Uh, there's a microphone down there when we get to this point uh, where you'll be uh, your questions will be welcome. We are audio-taping this, so we would really appreciate it if you would go to the microphone so that your question will be on the audio. Um, but we are going to have a little bit of a conversation among us at first. Um, and thank you, all my panelists. Terrific. Um, on these uh, special topic sessions, uh, the moderator gets to say a few things, too. So <laughs> I, I'm just going to say just a couple of things before we get into the conversations. And, uh, and to be a little controversial myself here, um, when the Religious Land Use and Institutionalized pa uh, Act was passed, it included a provision that said that, um, that the requested accommodation did not have to be mandated or central to the person's uh, religious orientation. And it also applied it to RIFRA, which changed that law. And what that did was it opened up an entire new world of what would be counted as religion. And I've been working with uh, people who are on the ground in prisons trying to wend their way through these laws uh, and these cases coming up through the courts, which are, there are thousands of them. So on the one hand, it's a crazy situation where everyone is trying to figure out what possibly counts as religion for the purposes of an accommodation. On the other hand, it's so broad that it does permit many people to have what is their sincerely held belief count as religion. And so what has happened is, for example, that atheist uh, groups, uh, religious humanists, uh, agnostics, are now asking for their rights in the prison system as well. And the courts are ruling that what they are asking for counts as a sincerely held belief under RELUPA. And this means that it also can be opened up in the RIFRA area. So what I'm seeing instead of a narrowing of what counts as religion, what I'm seeing is an expansion of what counts as religion for the purposes of the law. And it's a messy business, absolutely, and it is people muddling through, the courts muddling through, everyone muddling through. But I think it's a good thing. And the reason I think it's a good thing is because the prevailing perspective on what is appropriate under the law was so shaped by a, a particular worldview that people who had very legitimate religious uh, practices, etc., would be denied them without this expansion under RIFRA and RELUPA. So um, I'll give you an example of what happens. There was a case in the Ninth Circuit where a Native American objected to the law that required him to cut his hair. He asked for the exemption. This is a war soldier case. He asked for the exemption not to have his head shaved. 
it was common practice to shave everyone's head. This was a huge problem for this Native American. Went all the way to the Ninth Circuit. The Ninth Circuit ruled in his favor. So what happened? There was also another parallel case in, uh, at a, a lower level in Texas as well. So what happened? The prison authorities said, how are we going to mediate this now? We've got this Native American gets to have his hair long, and yet everybody else has to have their head shaved. So here's what happened. They didn't stick with that. They said they couldn't manage it, and so they decided to let all the inmates wear their hair however they wanted. In other words, there was never a really a re legitimate reason to shave everyone's head except to dehumanize them. We would not have that change in policy without the, this, these laws. Now it is true that we have uh, inmates asking for all kinds of accommodations for religions nobody ever heard of. Uh, we have a religion uh, and prison program here, uh, which we just finished yesterday, and we brought in new religious movements folks to talk about the rise of religious movements and so forth. And they were really surprised to find out that uh, several of the prisons are um, trying to address the accommodation of dudeism, which comes from the film The Big Lebowski. But what the new religious movement people said is, well, in a way it is based on a kind of Taoism. Uh, and there might be somebody who's sincerely holding these beliefs. And so we have that example, and then we have this Native American example. And what I'm going to say to you is I think the Dudism example, that it's worth it to have that pressing forward of what counts as people's sincerely held beliefs so that we get the case of the Native American who doesn't have to have his hair cut or the Sikh that doesn't have to have his hair cut or the Rastafari who doesn't have to have their hair cut. And we would not have any of that if we didn't have exemptions to general laws that we all think we, being the majority viewpoint, think um, are, you know, exemptions that we wouldn't countenance. So instead of this kind of strict, here's the secular perspective and here's the religious perspective on the other side, what I'm seeing in these laws is an expansion of the respect for a pluralistic view that not only respects what we might traditionally call religion um, on the basis of our ideas of, from uh, religion scholars, but also an expansion to uh, everyone's sincerely held belief, beliefs. And I, I think it's worth calling into question general laws that have a disparate effect on many different people. Now, it is true that Justice Scalia, and I'm going to paraphrase, said in the, in the um, Smith case that if we allowed this sort of thing, everybody would be, everybody's conscience would be a religion. I'm not so sure that that's a bad thing if you properly apply the strict scrutiny test, which says that if there is a compelling governmental interest, then and it's narrowly applied, then you can 
um, restrict someone's religions, religious practice. It's a good balancing test. And I think over time we're going to see uh, a much more accepting and open sense of what the U.S. is. And so those of us who are for pluralism as opposed to secularism or established religion are celebrating where this is all heading as difficult as it is, as we see it. And so at this point, we're going to open a conversation about all of the above, and I'm looking forward to that, and then your questions. Thank you. So first of all, um, I, could, I could start with a question, but perhaps somebody has a, a, a comment about another's uh, presentation that they'd just like to bring forward on their own. So I'd open it to that first. Open up to questions first? Okay, and then perhaps that'll create some conversation up here as well. Um, questions from, if you would go to the microphone so that we can have your questions on the audio, that would be awesome. And I got the feeling that you ended too soon. Um, so since we do have time, you ended by talking about a cost, I think. You, yes. You ended by talking about a cost, and then I'd like to hear more about that. And if you could um, maybe give an example or two um, where you see Laycock's concern for liberty being in, in some way um, not given uh, enough um, power. Thanks. The, the 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 question of cost. Um, I wanted I, I wanted the the two points that that I was opening to be related to one another to think about how we live with um, disagreement. And if I don't go on for talking, I'll I'll probably at some point want to connect um, what I'm saying about disagreement to some of what I thought for me the key points in in Winnie's remarks were. But to to start with your question, to think about um, the costs um, that we're paying associated with um, religious freedom. Obviously, in, in many respects, and, and I don't know if this is clear in my presentation, so I'll, I'll try and make it clear, um, I, I'm sympathetic to the endeavor to um, protect the lives and practices and, and dignity of religious folks. And and I speak a lot about secularism in my work. It probably means something different to me than, than it does in the ordinary acceptation. So I don't want to suggest that that I want to diminish in any way um, the value of religious lives, religious practices, and everything that we enfold and, and associate um, with with that regime. I, I think the clearest example I can give is um, coming from thinking through the um, Hosanna Tabor decision and the catastrophe that that decision is in my mind. I, I think it's a high-cost decision. It's interesting. It's, it's a unanimous decision on the part of the court. But I think about the disastrous consequences for um, um, the individual in the case who's uh, discriminated against. I'm Cheryl Perrick. She's um, fired um, because she has a disability, and then more specifically, to, to follow up the legal contours of the argument, because she goes to law or threatens to go to law because she's fired for having a disability. And I think that those questions in particular, that case in particular, should be raising for us starkly um, the cost that comes at preserving something important, this protection for religion. I mean, there are real claims on the other side of the case. But the cost that comes in terms of 
undermining um, collective political projects like creating um, protections that prevent discrimination against folks in that case or creating um, a, a health care regime that uh, uh, allows or promises universal access to health care. And so part of the, the cost that I want to face is want us to think about are the ways in which religious freedom in, intensifies issues and problems. That's one, that's one issue, but also makes more difficult um, what's already difficult enough, the, the, the endeavor of actually um, doing democracy and creating and supporting um, universal citizenship with real rights um, uh, and creating and enforcing um, real important laws that would sustain that. I hope that's a decent answer. Thank you all uh, for your talks this morning. I wanted to hear any or all of your reflections on the, the distinction between individual rights and group rights and how that's been played out in religious freedom questions here. You've implied a couple of different things in, in the different talks, and I'd just love to hear you all flesh this out a little bit more. Uh, well, I think the... Um the fact that human beings are social beings and form community is an essential part of politics and something that is uh, has to be uh, addressed. I, of course, am going to say that I'm not comfortable seeing religious communities as um, having rights that are different from other communities. Um, but I don't think that you can talk meaningfully about uh, individual people as religious without implying a community. I don't think people are religious all by themselves. People are formed in community. And how exactly to take that into consideration um, is a, 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 a very complex one and one that the U.S. Uh, various U.S. governments and state and federal systems have been struggling with for a long time. Um, I don't know if that answers your question. Um, Obviously, the Hosanna-Tabor decision uh, and the Hobby Lobby decisions uh, sort of put that, uh, those questions back um, into the center of the conversation in appearing to endorse uh, some kind of robust, um, sometimes spoken of as autonomy or even sovereignty for churches or uh, religious organizations. Um, I think phenomenologically that's kind of interesting, um, and I think it's interesting to think with in terms of uh, changes in American religious life, but I think I'll stop there. Um, you know, I think one of the interesting questions about that is, you know, what, what do we consider um, an organization? Um, is it a person with free speech rights? Well, in some respects, that may be the way to understand it. Um, but, of course, everybody working for Hobby Lobby now uh, is part of a collectivity, whether they want to or not, with respect to uh, contraception coverage. Um, you know, I, I think that, uh, that this is a, a struggle um, that is difficult to resolve under the under the basic uh, rules. If we 
you know, we're in the Ottoman Empire uh, and we had a millet system, um, you know, we could, uh, you know, we'd solve the problem that way. Um, there have, of course, been various kinds of objections or an embrace of, of, uh, of separate religious laws, um, whether uh, in Judaism, halakha or Sharia rules, but those are all done voluntarily by people within a within a community. Um, issues of of uh, in, in which the state has been involved in in uh, you know sort of authorizing certain groups to have power with respect to things like uh, kashrut uh, kosher designation um, implicate some of that. So uh, you know I think there are a lot of Tricky questions. Um, fundamentally, we don't have a system um, which is at ease with recognizing collective rights in that sense. Could I just add one thing? Of course, we do have examples in the U.S. in terms of um, Indian and Native American um, forms of uh, limited political autonomy or sort of range of limit, uh, Native American sovereignty. We have uh, the uh, ongoing struggle between states' rights and federal rights, and we have um, the interesting and complicated uh, phenomenon of the corporation and various uh, other forms of legal collectivities that do, in fact, have forms of uh, self-government or limited forms of autonomy. So I think in some ways uh, this is not as, as different from those examples as, the, as you might think. And, and then they're good examples to think with, I think, in terms of uh, what kind of use. The, and there are also um, less formal examples, the um, existence of separatist communities such as the Amish communities and ultra-Orthodox communities that have also found ways to construct uh, community life in a way that is somewhat self-governing and insulated from uh, larger regimes of regulation. If I could follow on to that too. Um, to, to, to continue thinking about this question that I'm suggesting we think about costs, um, I, I think that this, um, the, the, the new, the recent recognition by the court formally that religion is a problematic to be recognized on a communal rather than merely individual level, exemplified in, in Hosanna Tabor and, and, and Hobby Lobby, of course, it, it is double-edged in the sense that I think it, it's an improved perception of what's at stake um, within religious life and religious disputes to be able to recognize, of course, what's obvious to scholars of religion that, that these are problems of not mere individual belief but of communal forms of life. But double-edged also in the sense that that to my mind, um, the court is employing or deploying, uh, I think Winnie would say necessarily and always, I, I would say here certainly, um, unuseful concept of religion. And again, this is, this is the question of cost to reproduce what is in my mind a fundamentally secularist gesture of setting aside these communities designated as religious um, Unfortunately, what's not at stake are what's not at stake are simply dietary laws. But what's at stake here are larger questions about um, discrimination and, and questions about access to health care that cross-cut um, what should be 
what we recognize as um, properly political considerations on, on the one hand and on the other hand too um, to if we acknowledge as we should that government and politics is pluralist in that sense that political scientists employ it and multi-leveled and multivalent the question is what kind of polities um, these communities are being established as and in these decisions they're being established as hierarchical polities hierarchical polities that undermine the position of employees in particular vis-a-vis vis-a-vis those at, top, at the top of the institution, either a school administration, church administration, or um, a corporate administration. And that's, that's a cost to that form of life um, itself internally, not just to the, to the larger um, collective form of national political life. So the... The prison context is is uh, quite a, a laboratory for all of these issues, and um, and it, it's interesting for me to uh, think about this in terms of you know the broader society and then what's happening in the prison context. But in the prison co- context, the, the the cases over and over and over are uh, valorizing, uh, for lack of a better word, the the sincere belief of individuals. And so what we're seeing is, is that under the law the way it used to be, it was actually organizations that were very dominant, that religious organizations that were dominant, that were privileged. So one of our uh, folks who uh, oversees um, prison religion administration, Uli Clem, who's right here, <laughs> was talking uh, the other day, at our session about how when he first started, and I hope I'm paraphrasing you properly, they had what they called a, a, a carousel mentality for accommodating various people's religious beliefs. And what this was was that there was a carousel altar, and there was the Catholic uh, third, there was the Protestant third and the Jewish third. And then when the Protestant services would come in, they'd bring the carousel altar around, you could have the Protestants. And then you would shift it for uh, Jewish services, and you'd shift it for Catholic services. And he called, and he said that the carousel mentality prevailed. So this was an entrenchment of dominant religious viewpoints. That is shifting and changing over time because of RELUPA and RIFRA in the federal prisons. Instead, now what we have is a focus on all kinds of groups, but also, uh, to your question, accommodation of individual religious beliefs. Now, not everybody's going to get... Uh, there, there isn't enough time in the chapel for everyone to be able to go to the chapel or the, you know, whatever they call it this in various places anymore, um, to to have their own worship service individually. But there are accommodations for them for their practice in their cells, etc. And so I'm seeing a move uh, away from the privileging of dominant religious groups toward the acceptance of and um, real understanding about all kinds of religious diversity, all the way down to respecting individual people's sincerely held beliefs. And they get exemptions from 
uh, rules. And when those rules are called into question enough, like one of my famous examples is uh, a Wiccan wanted to have a wand in his cell. Sounds bad, right? They could poke somebody with it. There could be a danger, etc. But one of the prison officials who's thinking about these things along these lines says, well, don't they allow them to have a pencil? Well, if they could have a pencil, why can't they have a wand? So what happens is, is that some of the rules get called into question, and then they are allowed to apply to everyone. And so the exemption can swallow up the rule when there really, truly isn't a compelling governmental interest. And that's why I think the balancing test is a good one, because it, it doesn't mean everyone's going to get an exemption in the end, but what it does mean is that the compelling governmental interest isn't embedded in a hegemonic worldview that... Uh, this country is held, and it's opening up the perspective about what should be allowed. And these cases in the prisons are, like I said, it's a laboratory for the broader uh, society. And the people who are involved, the inmates go out, the people who are involved in them become ambassadors to the greater society, and we, have, uh, we develop a much greater openness. So contrary to what I'm hearing from other panelists here, that by separating religion in the way that they're talking about, that it, that, it, um, that it creates a privilege for church organizations, I think over time what we're going to see is less privileging of the dominant organizations and a move much more towards uh, pluralism and a very broad definition of sincerely held belief that uh, takes account of everyone and the limits laws that really shouldn't be in existence to begin with because uh, of the way that they limit people's liberty overall. So those are some of my thoughts about that. So, yes. Yes. My question's directed at Barbara and Winifred. I'd like to know where your views align and where they depart because it seems I'm just trying to feel out what you, how it kind of comes together and how it doesn't. Um, so if they do depart then I'd like to know that, but how do they align? I have a lot of respect for Barbara's work in prisons. I think that I have a, I have a lot of respect for anyone who works uh, on improving the lives of prisoners. Um, I do think that um, I do think that uh, that these exemption cases uh, do, in an interesting way. Uh, act as a kind of diagnostic for overregulation, not just in prisons but other places, so that if one always asks the question in religion cases, just take, for example, my cemetery case, um, you know, the problem there, one might argue, I would argue, is, is not one of religious freedom but one of how to respectfully um, create a, a municipal cemetery in a highly diverse society and really it is, as I would say, an accident of history that we're doing this diagnostic via religious exemptions, but I don't think it's actually uh, anything more than that. Um, I actually disagree that um, what Barbara describes somewhat idealistically um, about uh, prisons is going to spread into a wider society. I think we have a tremendous amount of uh, evidence right now that... Um, religious boundaries and religious prejudices uh, is alive and well. And um, I'm, I'm very 
much not optimistic about the larger project if we continue to use religion as a way of uh, dividing Americans from one another. And I would say that I very much uh, respect Dr. Sullivan's work as well. I think she's dug into the issues in ways that are illuminating to the conversation overall. And um, and I, I read the book uh, Prison Religion like three times in a row to really see what those arguments were and really appreciated the 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 depth of analysis, and I and um, I think that she raises some incredibly important issues, like the one just now. Um, I don't want to be naive about the fact that um, religious prejudice is um, can be used. The religiously prejudiced can use these laws to their potential benefit, and but I think it's because of the the. Well, let me just say this. I think that there is a way that it can work itself through. I think the Affordable Care Act is a compelling governmental interest, right? Hobby Lobby was not given unfettered exemption to the law. It was, as others said up here, uh, a balancing act. How do we balance their religious liberty with the uh, Affordable Care Act. In Indiana, people rose up and said, you know, you can't have a law that is going to allow the discrimination of LGBT people. So what did they do? They really, um, what was pr uh, proposed was to add specific language in the law to uh, really, in effect, make LGBT uh, rights a compelling governmental interest. And there may not be a way to balance that religious exemption. I don't think there is or should be. And so what happens is, I think, that we can rely on the way the law is going. And I know it's really muddy. It's a very muddled process that is going on. And it, and, but I'm not naive that it could be used in the way that some of the panelists are concerned. But what because I'm so really, really wanting to open up the old guard of the carousel mentality <laughs> to lots of different ways of thinking about things, I, I think the trade-off of the muddled process is, is more worth it than I think uh, Dr. Sullivan thinks it is and, and possibly others on the panel. And so I think that's where the difference is. But I do think all the issues being raised are very important for the conversation going forward. Yes, next. Did, did anyone else want to add anything? No. Okay. So setting aside for the moment um, <clears throat> your varying gifts of prophecy as to what will <laughs> happen in the future, um, I'm, I'm really intrigued and stimulated by what it seems to be to be the convergence of at least three of the four of you and I wanted to simply ask if I'm tracking with you as a Canadian who works on these issues in a different context and who has recently taken some heat for opposing the most recent government on some of its uh, more, I think, outrageous legislation. What I seem to hear from, from the three of you, perhaps not uh, Professor Silk, but maybe from the other three, is that religion has been an interesting happenstance as a kind of wedge uh, issue to open up questions of liberty, like Laycock is, is quoted as saying. And I'm wondering if I'm understanding the logic of your, your three positions, um, which I see cohering really very well, to suggest 
that actually religious freedom per se is becoming more and more obviously otios and that there just should be freedom, that the governing category should be liberty of individuals and groups and that it shouldn't actually matter whether it fits under some kind of category of religion. I mean, 30 or 40 years of work on implicit religion, invisible religion, do-it-yourself religion, and so on, should have told us by now, and perhaps others, that everybody's religious in certain uh, functional senses of the term. So the strict um, scrutiny test would apply to anybody. Are you, are you trying to game the system, or do you really mean it? And if you really mean it, then you should be entitled to liberty. And that the religious freedom legislation is has it, it, we're going to look back on this as a kind of historical episode that we finally outgrew and finally took seriously liberty of everybody, whether they wear a particular religious T-shirt or not. Am I understanding the thrust of what you're saying? And maybe Professor Sullivan, you can uh, start, or Professor Shearer, I, I, I'd like to know before I, think I leave. We need a political theorist on this one. Thanks. <laughs> um. I hope I don't regret this, but <laughs> I, I, I think so. Um, I, I, I want to agree with you um, um, most of the way I think, um, and it is to say that, yes, I'm certainly um, in favor of freedom. I don't think that it's best pursued for anyone through the ideal of religious freedom. Um, and the reason, um, the biggest reason, uh, I, I, need, I need to listen to Barbara a little bit more on, on her point, but I know that there's some disagreement, at least in strategy, in the way we want to go about pursuing and opening um, this issue. And the hesitation, I don't want this to sound glib, but the hesitation, right, for me is immediate um, to think, I don't think I want the prison to be a laboratory or a model for the way that we pursue freedom. Maybe I should think that. That's a stark and a dire perspective on um, uh, American democracy, if that is the appropriate model. But I would rather um, pursue freedom not through the venue, not, not through the litigious venue, although I did claim that freedom is about people making laws for themselves, um, not, not through the courts um, necessarily, but in a way that is attentive to um, that sensibility that uh, Winnie drew out very clearly in her talk of of education, not just, I think, for people who hold office, but education for citizens, to see those things that are important and human in her terms. So that you look out, you look at the seminary, you don't see folk religion, although perhaps that is one name for it. You see something um, important and human. That extends as well in the um, happy, happy circumstance where this works to seeing um, in those um, conservative positions, okay, I'll locate myself, that I happen to oppose, not something ridiculous or odious, but important and human as well, so that we can create and constitute a field where there are dialogues possible and initiatives undertaken um, according to common concern, where we pursue freedom together as a democratic society should, um, as one venue for um, doing things that differs starkly in sensibility and in strategy, at least from um, the motive uh, uh, litigating through religion um, for the purpose of producing, perhaps at the end, arguably, to some extent, the, the same outcome of, of freedom that's generalizable. Could I just maybe add on a, a couple of things? One, about the prison, of course, the prison as the laboratory is how prisons got started um, a couple hundred years ago. And the 
uh, Protestant reformers who created the penitentiary as a place for um, reform actually did explicitly understand their project in that way. I think that should give us pause. Um, I, I also wanted to come back to the carousel religion because this is the way in which, you know, um, projects that begin as projects actually of opening out and religious accommodation can become projects that close them down. I mean, the carousel or that form of religious accommodation is, is, is four or five hundred years old. And there's a wonderful book by Benjamin Kaplan, um, historian of the Reformation, in which he describes the various um, accommodations that were made in early modern, mostly Germany, but not only Germany, um, to find ways for the new religiously diverse communities to live together. And they're remarkably in ingenious. Um, and some of them are these sort of revolving uh, altars. There are churches that have, you know, sort of altar in the middle and congregation on each side. There are various ways in which to not get in each other's face about religion. And at that time, you could arguably, and if you read Kaplan's book, this is an actual marvel of sort of human invention in a, in a way to have peace instead of war. And so I think we have to be a, a little careful about these examples because we ourselves are creating similar kinds of artifacts that will eventually be anachronistic. Just to, just to make one point, um, one of the problems, it seems to me, of, of, of going forward with uh, just liberty is are, are the establishment and free exercise clauses of the First Amendment, which separate religion and, and point to treating, them, treating the subject separately. Uh, I do think that um, having, a, having a public institution... Uh, such as, a, as a, an elementary school um, where you've got a teacher who wants to put a Bible on her, her desk um, creates establishment problems. Now you can say, well, can't she have the liberty to express some opinion? Uh, and the answer, you know, is actually no, she can't. She's, she's acting as a state. I don't think we're ever going to be able to resolve this one way or the other. The concern that I have is that I think, I mean, over the over the period since since Smith, uh, is that I would say uh, we you know we've acquired a bifurcated politics in which one of the major political parties is strongly identified with religious concerns and the other is uh, strongly identified with uh, with secular solutions, um, and I think. Uh, while there are real, uh, have been, has been, I think, some significant progress in terms of accommodation for small religious groups uh, to, to, to be recognized uh, beyond the carousel, um, that, that one of the consequences of the, of the development in, the, in jurisprudence and of, of throwing these issues into, the, into uh, the political arena has been to exacerbate uh, our politics, a kind of politics of religious uh, and of religion and irreligion, and I don't think that's a good thing. And then uh, I would like to agree with uh, with Matthew that I think we may be headed, trying to head in the same direction, but with a different strategy. And I think that the 
the strategy that I'm proposing here, I think obviously, it's pretty obvious, I think it's the better strategy for uh, liberty. Um, let's just take the cemetery example that um, Dr. Sullivan mentioned, and that is that, and I, sh I guess I should say Winnie, right? Please. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> um, under the law the way it is framed now, I think the case would have been different. I think that the RIFRA law that was applying that required that something had to be mandated by someone's religion, that now has been changed. So if we take that example, we would say the law, the, that the um, management of the cemetery required all of these little uniform markers. So you would look across and you'd see all these uniform markers. Now, under the current law, I think it would be everyone's expression. They would call it my atheist worldview, these court cases that are now including that as religious perspective, my whatever. And you'd look across and it would be this diversity of beautiful expressions of memorials. The, found, the founders of the United States were trying to avoid uniformity. They wanted people to have all kinds of expressions. And in my own work, I've written that, that their view was not a secularist view or a religious establishment view, which seems to be the argument that gets all the play in the news, but that it really was to open up to this kind of pluralism that I'm talking about. And I could say a lot more about things, but I want to make sure we get to our other questioners. So we'll go from there. Thanks for this panel. Um, I have two uh, sort of quick observations, one which I think supports the drift of this conversation and one which um, is maybe cautionary. Um, so I work with Native American communities, and if you sort of dial into the, um, the sacred lands claims, um, they're often understood in the literature as it's a difficult sell to speak about spatial practices and claims to sacred lands as religion. So it's sort of a definitional question that places us right here. What's interesting um, is that the um, litigants, both under the First Amendment famous Ling case, uh, and then in the Ninth Circuit in 2008 under RIFRA, uh, the litigants were collectivities. They were tribal nations. Uh, with the limited sovereignty rights that Winnie was just speaking about. But what happens in the court decisions is their collective claims get flattened into spiritual fulfillment, and the word spiritual is, is there. It's sort of Native American spirituality, not Native American religious claims, so it doesn't get the substantial burden threshold to sort of kick in with the religious freedom protections of strict scrutiny. So in a way, that sort of makes the point. Um, but what doesn't make the point is um, the structure of the sacred lands claims come to religious freedom law after having unsuccessfully um, worked in the arena of sort of common governance that Matthew and Winnie were pointing us to under environmental law or under the historic preservation statute that has all of these consultation procedural things that get stakeholders together that try to work out memorandums of agreement between government and the stakeholders and their specific status to the, to the federally recognized tribes as collectivities with these political rights. 
Um, but those kinds of things haven't really meant squat on the things that really matter to the native communities. And so um, they're not going into the religious freedom discourse thinking we have religion too, necessarily. They're going in thinking um, we need a power word that's going to protect these claims and change the nature of the consultations that we have with government agencies. We don't want to go to the yes-no decisions before the Supreme Court. Please, no, please don't. That's what the Native American Rights Fund said about the Smith case. They're like, no, under no circumstances bring this um, to the Supreme Court at this time. So I just wonder whether you'd respond. Um, I mean, thank you, Michael. I, I think that's absolutely right. And I, I, I mean, if you'll let me, I'll say I think actually you help us in our uh, – <laughs> I mean, wouldn't you say that – I heard you saying that religion is actually not – the word. It, it is a word that has a certain power in certain kinds of contexts to make these. But the claim that's being made by um, Indian nations is a claim of sovereignty. It's a much stronger claim, I think, of, than, than the, the claim of religion. I mean, I, I, I see that it does that, that religion can do that work in some cases. And, and I guess I would want to say back to you that, uh, that um, getting rid of the religious freedom discourse maybe allows us to see better the political stakes uh, for Native communities. Um, I don't know. It's also for Matthew, because uh, you Pardon were... It, this is also a question for Matthew, too. Just yeah. to, I'm not sure whether you would respond to that. Because presumably the consultative kind of world of bringing stakeholders together to talk about important places and mitigate the implications of... Uh, government actions for those communities and the way that places get managed by public agencies and so forth would be just the kind of sort of democratic process, robust, everybody's equal, everybody's got a place at the table. Right, and thanks, Winnie, to just um, uh, point out something that I agree with. The, the, the point um, The point for me, um, and one has to be careful about invoking um, the ideal of democracy, um, I do so in the sense that I think it's it's in in, in that sense that the, the late political theorist Sheldon Wolin I think would have uh, invoked it um, not to describe um, what we have but to describe an important aspiration and possibility mm -hmm. and in particular um, in, in in it's everything um, is difficult when when you come to the case of um, indigenous peoples but it can be figured as Democracy, the stakes of democracy here are claims for um, inclusion or trying to produce a kind of equal standing that has been importantly denied. The hardest part of your um, intervention for me is not, um, is not, I don't, not as I, as I hear it, um, I don't want to, what's hard isn't a theoretical problem, but it's a real problem, the one you're pointing to, the sense in which um, other avenues um, that, that I recommend or that I prefer and that I think ultimately are contributing to and sustaining for what one hopes to be a democratic life or a more democratic politics, um, you point out, have precisely failed, um, and that the avenue that has worked and has um, um, gained purchase is litigation on the on, on the basis of religious freedom. And um, the 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 questions, I guess, it, it's hard to say. <laughs> it's hard to say. Uh, uh, it's hard to talk back against something that um, that that works and does important political work. But I do want to maintain that it's important to think through the costs of it and the possibilities that it does foreclose to work through that avenue. I don't, I don't, I don't think it's easy. Um, I don't think there's an easy answer I can give or a sufficient one. Okay. But thank, thank you. you. Thank you.
Just one quick thing, and that is, the, here's an example where the prison context uh, counts uh, in terms of your comment about um, Native American spiritualities versus religion. Um, when religion was used in the First Amendment it, at the time, it didn't actually mean what we mean by it today. Today, we, when we use the word religion, we say, uh, you know, it, it seems to imply like institutions, right? At the time of the founding, it meant a, more along the lines of a set of religious beliefs and my personal piety. And so it had kind of this broader idea. So lots of times young people today will say, I'm spiritual, not religious. But it had that sense of spiritual in, it, in its original formation. Um, and that is coming forward again through these prison cases. So, for example, in the prison cases, there's an, a no question there as the cases come through and as people muddle through uh, actually at the institutional level negotiating along the lines you're talking about, nobody's questioning that Native American spirituality is religion because they don't th anymore think of religion as in that institutionalized way, they think of it more as sincerely held beliefs that are then um, given given more credence if there's a, a huge community on the outside that represents it in some way as well. And so I think that there's a fertile ground there, perhaps, for the Native community because of that. Could I just add one thing? I hear, heard you, Michael, saying at, at the beginning of your remarks um, that, and I, I think this is really essential, that the, the claim made by Native communities is not just one of religious freedom or one of communal values, but one of communal values tied to land and to a particular understanding of land. And I think that uh, I just wanted to, uh, to uh, underscore the importance of that intervention. Um, this is a long conversation that Mike, we, we could have about whether religious freedom is the best rubric under which to think this through, but I think that that is a very important and strong intervention that connects obviously with some other uh, political projects, including projects concerning the environment um, that require a, a kind of acknowledgement and recognition of the power of, of that witness. So, Right, and I think that the carousel mentality uh, view uh, wasn't that, that, that there isn't a possibility of considering uh, practice on land, on the sacredness of the land, etc., in that uh, other worldview, and that by opening up and considering all different ways of thinking about what one sincerely held beliefs are, and even belief, I think, is is you know framed in a particular way as well, but, or can be. Um, but because of that opening up, I think there's a greater uh, possibility that people have to start to consider, wait, you mean someone's land is integral to their religious practice in some way? I think those questions open up more because of the various things that are happening as a strategy turning to that. Next question. Yeah, so I'd like to make a couple observations, and then I have a question. So I have a, a unique opportunity in that we spoke about the prisons, and I've been working maybe 25, 30 years in the prisons on religion issues, but I also have had 
direct interaction with four other primary governmental agencies, veterans, the military, um, health and human services, the justice system, and the prison system, which is a kind of side part of the justice system. And I've had the opportunity to work with people at the highest level. I'm, I'm speaking about the people who actually run these departments and those who are under them a slight bit. And over a 30-year period of time, as we discuss religion, one of the things that becomes very clear is that there is has been a concept that there's a dominant religious narrative in all of these agencies, even though there's not supposed to be, and that the primary directive of these agencies in the religion category is to keep there from being competition against the primary religious, you know, entrenched uh, perspective. And so what happens is, is that you have, you know, you've heard the term the good old boys. Well, this is the absolute perfect example of the good old boys. They're, they, he's and she's are all in power. And everyone else has to jump through a whole bunch of hoops to get the same basic rights and such that they already have because they're in power. And these laws that have come up, uh, like RIFRA and RELUPA, have changed the game to some degree. And now I want to switch to the prison because I like the prison best out of all the agencies. What you're all talking about is this very broad thing of let's look at our entire country and see how these things about religion and law are affecting everybody. And then we get these major cases like Hobby Lobby and such, and we, we get something that blankets everybody everywhere. But on any given week, there will be a hundred cases in a prison system where people from all religions, all ethnicities, all different things are challenging these exact same things that become the big cases, like in Supreme Court case, and you get to see how it plays out. And it isn't until we started getting to this place of religion being seen as a sincerely held belief that the individuals that you see in this kind of more like microcosm of the larger country, uh, that you get to observe what actually happens when you empower people to have the force of law uh, behind them to express that they too are religious and that they too have rights and have coverage and that there's a power that allows them, being a small little group, to stand against a giant huge group whose primary objective is to keep them from getting a piece of the pie. So when you talk about this religious carousel, I love the idea because every single agency I've got go into has that carousel. It's like a joke. You know, you go in and they say, we are expanding religious diversity. This just heard this a few years ago. We're moving beyond inviting a Jew onto our council. We're actually going to bring a Muslim on the council. So the council's a Catholic priest, a Protestant minister, a Jew, and a Muslim, and they now think they've satisfied diversity and advanced pluralism. And my question to you is, is that if we don't have these laws... Uh, to deal with these issues on the basis of religion, and we know for sure that our own governmental agencies and everything have this particular pre-disposition you know, uh, uh, to move in a certain way, what is there going to be 
to help advance the relationship between religion and the state and between power and, you know, minorities that don't have power? So that's my question. I mean, I think there's a long, you know, there is a process. Some of it is, is statutory. Some of it is court decisions. Some of it involves changes in, in overall uh, social mores, which are shaped and which shape those those decisions. I don't think it's a, it's you know, there's not a a little machine that 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 costs up these kinds of larger changes. Um, I suspect that the prison system and the various agencies that are responsible in one way or another for it, uh, you know, gradually move in the direction that they move for a whole host of reasons and um, at not being someone who works in the prisons, uh, uh, you know, I will um, take uh, take the general sense here that um, that in general there's been over time in recent years uh, a, a greater recognition of religious diversity as there has been in the military. Uh, you can now um, be a Wiccan in the, in the military and be recognized and so on. Um, and I think that's a good thing. Uh, but, you know, sometimes these processes take longer than one would like. Um, I, I really appreciate the question. I hope you'll um, forgive me for, in a sense, shooting from the hip. I don't work in prisons <laughs> or on prisons. But here's the thing that I want to... He's been in prison, though. I, oh, Just sh- kidding. Um, no, no, I have not. This is being recorded. Um, um, well, it just happens that I haven't... Um, <laughs> The, the I, I understand and, and, and I can appreciate it's a powerful argument to see um, within these institutions the idea of sincerely held belief or the rhetoric or language or doctrines of sincerely held belief being used as a lever um, against power. What's interesting are a couple things, though, right? And I am going to go... You, you're, the, the thrust of your comment is to caution against this move, but here's why I want to do spin out back again to a larger level of social analysis and look at national discussions and policies, which is to say that so within a prison you see sincerely held belief being used a, as a lever, but the prisons are obviously not self-governing institutions. At least we're not talking about citizens here. We're not talking about the same – we're not talking about politics in the same sense where – the, I'll say, proper ideal is to um, produce a situation of self-governance. And so that's a viable strategy within a prison and an important one. But then the counter is to think about, for me, the counter at other levels are to think about, you know what, people are actually starting to talk about mass incarceration as a problem right now. And that, I think, is dependent upon, certainly not, it's religious freedom didn't get us there, not that it should have. But that, I think, is dependent upon um, to go back to Winnie's formulation, um, the recognition that there's something important in human locked up in prisons, and that if there's hope for a larger structural reform of prison life beyond individual accommodations for individuals who are incarcerated, that that's unfolding through what is properly conceived a democratic movement that's dependent upon not rights claims, but dependent upon and, and this is interesting, too, to, to go back to some of the things we're talking about. This is dependent upon alliances um, between conservative and progressive and centrist and technocratic folks. But there is this larger, right, public sphere 
that is importantly moving in political ways that are quite different from um, this, this rights-based um, lever that you're pointing to. So that's not to diminish the importance of what you're recognizing. It's just my response about, well, how, here's how I think about the problem and why, why I'm maintaining my lens on it. Thank you. I, I actually can understand that. Um, Dr. Solomon or Winnie, <laughs> I'm not sure. It's, I know you've written extensively about the prisons and such. I just, you know, and I want people not to misunderstand. I'm saying the prison is a good lens, but it, the exact same thing that's happening there is reflected everywhere else in the other agencies. Um, so the exact same fights that are taking place in the prison are taking place in the military right now. And the military is not, although I guess I, you could say it's not a democracy either, you know, but, um, yeah, yeah, <laughs> but, uh, you know, take a better example, say veterans affairs, you know, mm -hmm. which is supposed to be people just voting. So you have veterans who are not allowed to identify as yeah. certain religious yeah. groups and can't have certain rights based on it because they're not seen as a religion, even though mm -hmm. numbers wise, there are millions sometimes of them. So what we, maybe we could do is take a few, a couple of questions more and then continue the conversation. Thank you. I, too, enjoyed the panel very much. I'd like to enter uh, the discussion or direct, if I could, my attention, your attention to another uh, aspect of this. And to do that, I want to use the word church, knowing that that excludes some people, but I think it allows us to avoid some of the discussion about what is and is not religion. And... and uh, more to the point, get to what I think was a more pragmatic impulse in the framing of our laws, which is the recognition that there are certain aggregations of, uh, of humanity that mirror what became the modern state, that they were, more, they were older than the modern state, and they, they aggregated to themselves not simply land but a sense of territory. And they not only had a sense of belief and conscience, but they had their own legal systems. And that it behooved the state to keep their distance from them as much as possible. And that's why I want to use the word church, and I want to raise the, the question of Mormonism in a particular factual context. I'm sure you're aware in the last couple of weeks there's been a lot of public commentary about rules that were issued by the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints having to do with their recognition of the legality of same-sex marriage as a civil matter, but they would refuse to recognize it as an ecclesiastical matter. And they had, in previous years, laid considerable groundwork for this uh, in their uh, continuing to ask for, in their recognition of civil rights, housing, employment, etc., the Utah law, in contrast, was always thrown in the face of Indiana, right, Winnie, if you remember this. Um, so then they announced their rules, which would be to excommunicate someone for engaging in same-sex marriage. There was, there was an uproar for a number of reasons that we could talk about, but I was most interested that this Thursday there was an editorial in the New York Times, and so this question really goes to Mark because I think you probably saw it, right? Did you see it? And what struck me about this editorial was that it was from the editorial board. And it took a position on a narrow ecclesiastical matter. And that surprised me because it seems to me that it was designed, this is, I'm, I'm asking for your opinion on this. All of you actually, you've all touched on this to some degree or another. 
uh, in what is permissible governmental activity with respect to, again, my word, churches. This, I, want, I want to limit you, if I can, to, to churches. Um, not knowing that this affects all kinds of whatever religion may be or not be in the country. But I, I don't want to argue that either the, the Latter-day Saint or the Catholic or the more conservative Jewish position represents the kind of issues we've been raising here. Um, so, so that is to say, it seemed to me it raised, it raised the anxiety that these more highly boundaried religions have been expressing but have yet to receive an adequate hearing about that their right to self-governance where it does not affect civil or criminal law is going to be interfered with. Um, and, and for the New York Times, being a political institution at a particular rarefied level, so this is a political question I'm asking you, not what will the court say, but the other institutions in the United States that participate in governance and are voices of authority, I was struck that this particular voice of authority uh, took a position on this question. So, if you will, if there's a rationale to this statement, and forgive me for going on so long, it is this idea, it behooves us to keep our distance at times. And, and we have in the past, now I'll violate my own request of you, we have, we have increasingly, as you know, turned to free speech rights to protect religious expression. And I'm wondering if we're now going to be seeing some arguments going to privacy rights or zones of non-governmental interest uh, to protect religion, since privacy is, is a much more dominant theme in the law. And uh, this appears to be that, that possibly one of those issues where a boundary has been crossed. Thank you. Thank you. So, Kathleen, <laughs> I, I take it you think... It's inappropriate for the New York Times to uh, pronounce in its editorial voice. Well, in that editorial, which I just pulled up, um, it did say religious organizations are entitled to set doctrine. But we don't like this one. Um, and, you know, that's the First Amendment under uh, freedom of the press. They can say what they want, as you know. Um, you know, I think there are various ways in which the society, including the press, um, make it known to churches um, that actions they're taking are not, uh, you know, don't meet with current standards. And they're free to say, up your nose with a rubber hose, but... Um, but I think some people would say that there were, you know, there was a larger societal context which led the LDS Church to change its rules on African American men as priests. Uh, but so I'm sympathetic to the sense that, you know, mind your own business, New York Times. We're trying to do our best. We've got accommodations, uh, you know, protections for for LGBT people in terms of housing and, and employment discrimination and let us run our churches, our church the way we want to and, and stop kibitzing. Um, but fair comment is fair comment and I, and I think that, that religious institutions, churches and others, uh, that feel free themselves to comment broadly and to enter uh, um, the public square uh, 
either publicly or semi-publicly on propositions that are voted on and stuff. Um, and that includes Catholic bishops and rabbis and others. You know, if you speak out that way and you're not an enclave, then, you know, if some stuff comes back at you, uh, I think that's part of, part of the, you know, Bartlemy fair of, of, of public discourse. So I'm not that worried about it, but I understand, you know, it's a pain in the neck. Next question. First off, thanks so much for this really interesting panel. Um, I've been working on a project on non-preferentialism um, in the era of Everson and McCollum. Um, and, of course, people think of non-preferentialism. When they're Could you come a little closer to the microphone? Oh, sure. Yeah, no, I've been working on this project on non-preferentialism in the era of Everson and McCollum. Um, and I'm curious to know a little bit more if the panelists can give me some ideas about where to go for a clearer understanding of how this turned to an accommodationist paradigm that reads free exercise as the controlling clause has contributed to the contemporary situation regarding religious freedom. I'm just interested particularly in sort of how we tell the story of the relationship between these clauses, um, how constitutional lawyers teach these questions. I had one constitutional lawyer tell me that today an accommodationist paradigm that emphasizes equality is pretty much reigns supreme in the way that we teach constitutional law. I don't know how accurate that is. I wanted to find out from you all whether you think that is true. Um, and what a, more about the sort of prehistory of that development. Thanks. I don't teach constitutional law. Um, I, I mean, it's a, it, it, the history that you're asking for, I don't know what, where you went. Oh, there you are. Um, is exceedingly complex. Right. Um, yeah, I, I mean, I think we could talk about some recent history since Smith, as, as Barbara has, and the way in which Smith uh, realigned uh, and created a new politics around these issues. I, I think Smith was very powerful, and especially the reaction to Smith and the passage of RIFRA uh, change things. But the 20th century story and the mid-20th century story is an interesting one, too. I think that's a little too much for this panel right now. Yeah. To be sure, I didn't mean to denigrate the question at all. I just meant sincerely. I don't, I don't have a good answer for you. And, and I don't teach constitutional law either. Uh, but but, uh, but uh, all I can say is, is that there was um, uh, quite, quite a move because of Everson, you know, towards a kind of a secularist uh, perspective. And then there's been pushback since then in case law and, and in the passage of uh, various laws. And there's been a lot of discussion about how uh, agencies of the government can accommodate, uh, work with, religious organizations, and it's really still unfolding. And uh, as Winnie said, it, it's extremely a complex uh, set of issues that it all raises, and I think we all are dealing with that in some way. Maybe i just add one thing. I think it, it is interesting that now in 2015 we can look back and see that the period between 1940 and 1990, um, between Everson and, um, and Everson and Cantwell, the incorporation uh, of the uh, First Amendment into the 14th Amendment, the religion clauses, um, up until Smith, created a, a kind of almost a, a blip. I mean, interestingly, I went to law school in the middle of that blip, and so we thought that separationism was, you know, natural to the religion clauses, and, and now we can see that it's not. And so I think that's, so I think that we're only beginning really to understand that 50-year sort of experiment in separationism. I wouldn't use the word secularism. I'd use the word separationism. Um, and 
Next question. Uh, I have a couple quick things. Uh, Matthew, you ended the first half of your remarks uh, with two really interesting questions um, that you didn't answer, you didn't talk more about. I, I wanted to hear you say more about, uh, especially uh, one, I think I'm characterizing it properly, you said that you asked whether uh, um, in this division that exists between the political realm and the religious realm, that uh, the religious realm is assumed to be intolerant and exclusionary. And the question was, was, do we end up creating the very thing that we fear? I, I think I've got that, that right. So I'd like to hear you say more about that. The second one is totally unrelated. Uh, Winnie, when Barbara was referring back to your cemetery case, and she said that if that was a case today, um, it, we, we would envision a, a world, we would envision a cemetery where everybody would have all sorts of decorations. And you look like you were about to really disagree with that. And I, I would like to hear you say more. I'll have to thank you for the question. Um, this is part of the argument of uh, of my book, so I love going on and on about it. But 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 I'll I'll, I'll be brief. Um, um, the concern or the argument or the thing that I want us to consider um, is the sense in which um, unacknowledged assumptions about religion through what I think of as a secular discourse, but a secular discourse that posits a separation between religion and its others. Um, are productive and generative, not just intellectually, but sociologically as well. And, and so in, in my book, probably the most powerful way I have of getting at this problem is looking at um, early modern debates over toleration and precisely this figure of John Locke that I quote as giving us the idea that you know, it's above all things necessary to separate. Of course, you look at those debates and you look at how Locke is operating in those debates and what you discover is that he's using the idea of separation strategically um, and as a lever, as a diagnostic, he's saying, look, we need to separate out and understand what's properly religious and properly political, not because we think that that's actually onological or that useful in an intellectual or philosophical sense, but because that's how we can intervene in public discourses. And in fact, he argues from scripture um, within a circumstance in which it's broadly understood that religion is, is a public affair and that what's at stake for Locke is to not privatize religion, but to press against an overweening, a certain overweening establishment, not in the name of separation exactly, but in the name of a more decent and well-functioning um, public life, at least in, in my interpretation. And to think about, um, you know, the consequences, the, the general argument, when we bring it back to the question of religious pr freedom, is the extent to which constituting individuals, communities, movements, discourses as religious has the effect of, the intended effect of hardening lines. I mean, that's precisely what we're doing when we protect rights through law is to set things out of bounds to create spheres of, spheres of accommodation or, or, or non-coercion. And, and of course that can have wonderful effects in many ways, um, for the people involved, but what what I think generally we haven't done as good a job at counting are the consequences, the negative consequences that go along with producing those divisions and the way in which what's important also, if we're going to think through this paradigm of pluralism, I would argue would be to try to avoid the circumstance where we have a plurality of enclaves that don't particularly get along very well with one another and which undermine the pursuit of collective, what I'm calling democratic projects. And so, um, again, 
to posit those boundaries is, is of course, what it means to protect something. And, and one of the damaging consequences is to intensify the internal dynamics of those things and to make it impossible for them to, um, uh, for there to be discussions or disagreements across, across those differences. To go back to the question of, you know, LDS. And, and my response to that would be, well, the New York Times can't comment if, if the Mormon church is an autonomous enclave with no connection to public life, but that's not its aspiration, I don't think. And so from, from my perspective, of course the Times should talk to um, the Mormon church, and of course church should talk right back in a lot of ways. And if we can find and enable those sorts of, um, those sorts of engagements, that's a part of, um, hopefully, a hopeful part of uh, a well-functioning and attentive democratic life that has religion in it but isn't focused on on that division. And, uh, we have Mark comment and then your uh, It does seem to me that these are some, sometimes um, uh, complicated. Uh, there, there are unexpected results to, to these allowances or differences. I mean, including, you know, even if not formally, if you can have um, the, a religious claim put forward. Uh, I was thinking of, of uh, when he was governor of Virginia, Mark Warner, saying, uh, "I will, you know, I'm a Catholic. I'm against the death penalty because that's my religion. Uh, I will enforce it if it's, in, you know, if, if called on to do so as governor of, of Virginia because that's what I'm going to do." And in that sense, I, th- I, you know, I think if he had just run straight up as an anti-death penalty. Uh, at, you know, an opponent of the death penalty running for governor of Virginia, it would have been uh, more likely that he would have gotten not gotten elected than by saying, "Well, this is my religion, and so you have to understand that's what it's about." Um, and I think, in similar ways, um, recognition of religious uh, of difference, including even you know collective ones, can actually uh, make for a calmer and a and a more uh, an easier public square, uh, but not always. Um, and and so I'm not sure that there's any any simple rules that can be disengaged from larger contexts of culture, history, circumstance um, that that tell us what's going to make for a, a an easier time or a harder time or a sense of of, of equality as citizens. I do think that that the to sort of uh, Make a quick comment on Helen's question about uh, Everson era. Um, you know the sort of uh, creation of an ideology of Judeo-Christian in the in in World War II and 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 in, during the Cold War created a kind of uh, um, force uh, in society for understanding uh, the importance of recognizing. Religious diversity as a national project, which uh, may have encouraged accommodation uh, in the courts. Boca Raton Cemetery. Uh, just briefly, I um, well, two things. Boca Raton's one of the most successfully zoned places, I think, in the United States. Um, I think the impulse there is aesthetic. It's also uh, class-based, and and I guess um, if I smiled when. Barbara said that it was because uh, I think what we're seeing is public spaces that are more controlled by corporate aesthetics and a kind of uh, smoothing out of difference rather than uh, an acknowledgement of difference. Um, So if I 
And I think that the impulse then, the response to bucrotone is not more diversity, although I acknowledge the changes to RIFRA that Barbara mentions, but I think uh, that the cemetery regulations just be better enforced. I mean, that's the lesson of the Boca Raton case is that those cemetery workers shouldn't have been allowed to let people uh, put there and that there'll just be more control ex exerted. I think that's the world we live in now. And, and I would just like to say that I agree with what you said about the, the corporatist smoothing of everything, but that what, what I'm saying is that through the um, request for exemptions, it pushes back against that, and that um, it, it, it's keeping us from moving towards the kind of uniformity that I think uh, is, is, is not good for our polity, uh, actually. I, I'd also just like to say problematize Locke a little bit, which is to say he did make the statement you said, but he also defined it more as the difference between eternity and the here and now. And he also commented that we can separate issues of eternity, you know, what happens to us after we die, from issues of the here and now to some degree. But did he also recognize that there was a place where the two meet because uh, people's religious sensibilities also play out in the here and now. And he said that what we would have is laws of the magistrate and, um, and when there was a conflict between one's conscience and the, mag the laws of the magistrate that one would have to go with one's con conscience and, and take the medicine. But he didn't really imply that there was a clear line between the two that, but based on that one statement. So I just wanted to problematize that for you a little. I'm sure you know this, but yeah. Sure. So um, we'll do Locke quickly, and, and then, <laughs> then we'll go on somewhere else. But the, the, I, in part, I, I agree with you completely that Locke's point is not to make this clear separation, except that he says we have to separate those two things when we're analyzing the rhetoric used and deployed in public life. And what he's after, precisely through the figure of pretense, is trying to decide what people's actual motivations are and what their pretended motivations are. And so he's analyzing a situation in which people are invoking um, the concern for salvation, but in his analysis, they're doing so in order to pursue political projects. And so what Locke is doing is positing this clear distinction between religion and non-religion because he thinks it helps us to make sense of real dangerous disputes we're having in public life, but then at the same time he's revoking and pulling back that division, and this is where where I agree with you. He, he agrees, you know, for Locke, for Locke, we're all Christians, those of us who matter and get to speak. But you know, more more importantly for us, we could say we're all religious if we want to look at his circumstance, and we understand that our public life entails not just collective worship, but the um, collision and intersection through this figure of persuasion of religious folks, and so he's trying to manage that life and turn it towards civility. And one of the strategies he employs to do that is to make a, uh, a contingent and temporary distinction between what's religious and non-religious. My point is that we 
sometimes, um, as philosophers and as people who are doing law and as political actors, um, take that distinction too seriously or ingrain it in a way that if you want to follow Locke, that he recommended is not politically useful. That's the, that's, I'm that's looking forward to a lot more conversations with you about that topic, but I'm going to turn back to our microphone. And okay, I'll make, the, I'll make the question quick. I mean, this, um, this panel began sort of speaking about the, the uh, emergence of church autonomy and the collective uh, nature uh, that the uh, Supreme Court is recognizing in Hobby Lobby. Corporations are not only persons, but corporations are persons capable of religious exercise that's protected under RIFRA. And I have a kind of a wonky, I guess, maybe it's a corporate law question, but it doesn't seem at all clear to me how um, corporations are collectivities, uh, especially the privately held. Is it the, is it the shareholders? Is it the, um, uh, the employees plus the shareholders? And I, I know that that opened doors in that case, people talking about, like, well, what kind of collectivity is this, and therefore whose religious rights in that collectivity are being recognized. I just wonder, if that's an impertinent question, don't answer it, and let's conclude with something else, but I thought I'd raise it. Well, in the in the decision, there is the, I believe, the, the, the term used is closely held. Um, what closely held means, we don't know. Um, but when when the case was briefed, um, you know there were people who thought, well, a public a publicly owned corporation would not be eligible here, but in the case of of Hobby Lobby and Conestoga Wood, um, these were were privately held corporations. So that you know is is part of an answer, at least you know to the extent that one can understand uh, the the majority decision there. Um, I think. As we move from Hobby Lobby to Little Sisters, what we're now talking about are institutions, including you know significant religious institutions with a diverse a group of employees and students who are covered by an insurance plan, uh, who uh, are not. I mean, the reason those are distinguished from churches per se and other other strictly religious bodies, I won't go further to define that, is that the assumption with a, with, with a church is that whoever works for it and is covered by the plan is kind of part with the program, um, whereas if you're an employee of Notre Dame, maybe not. And, and I, so I think that the court is in the process of trying to dis, you know, sort of uh, sort out what the nature of this, the collectivity is such that it would be entitled to uh, to a waiver or not entitled to a waiver or entitled to a complete exemption from the Affordable Care Act uh, mandate or, or not. I mean, this is all a work in progress. It, it, I'll try and answer briefly. I, I don't think this question is, is off to the side in any, in, in any respect. I think it's right at the center. Um, and it's a dramatically important question to understand the nature of these corporations, not just from the study of uh, scholars of religion, but from from the perspective of political theory as well, there's something real about corporate personhood. It's not merely legal legal fiction. Um, it's a legal fiction evolved to account for the sense in which there is a certain self-governing community there, which is important at least from the respect that power is exercised, and this is a basic point. Power is exercised over a lot of people for most of their lives within these corporate 
structures. And my worry, to come back to the theory about, or back to the problem of religious freedom, is what changes when um, that corporate structure is recognized as autonomous or sovereign or as um, satisfied, set apart and having um, a special and distinctive and unique um, rights. I think that that's a, that's a problem for, in many respects, but thanks for the question. And I'd like to add to that that to putting the corporation in its historical context uh, problematizes this even further in the sense that uh, when corporations were first uh, formed, they were actually an arm of the government. So you had to get a charter from the king and the corporation had to have a specific public purpose to even exist. And it was thought to be a very dangerous form of uh, doing business because of the separation of the shareholders from what the entity was doing. And so um, we have remnants of that now where you have to still, to form a corporation, you still have to get a charter from the state well, it's a remnant from this earlier time. And you still have to say what your corporate purpose is, but now you can put all corporate purpose. And then there were, after the 14th, uh, well, even before, but um, there, there are, were certain cases that over time gave the corporation this personhood, which it needs for things like a contra making a contract or for something like being sued, that sort of thing. But there's a famous case called uh, Liggett versus the comptroller of the state of Florida where it, and I won't get into it in too much depth, but it basically involved a discrimination uh, where they wanted to favor their home corporations in Florida versus an out-of-state out corporation using the tax laws. And there's a, I recommend everyone look it up. It's a dissent. Well, the court ruled equal corporations have equal protection. The state cannot assert its public interest anymore. And when you think of the history that, it, that a corporation had to have a public purpose, and now it doesn't have to have any, Justice Brandeis wrote an amazing uh, decision. It's a very famous, dis not decision, the dissent, where he talked about the, the future of this would be a reinstitution of a kind of feudalism. And so, from my perspective, that part of that decision, the Hobby Lobby decision, where we move into the corporation at, that used to be an arm of the government being somehow separated from it altogether and having its own autonomous um, uh, rights is particularly alarming. So, any other thoughts, questions, com comments, thoughts? Uh, I guess that's it, and we have one minute left, so we have time to thank one another here on the panel. Thank you very much, all of you. Really great. Really interesting. Great questions, too.